witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey guys, it's Rich Davis from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer. Making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance or any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew could stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you could sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter what your style, you could drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Oh, hi. Hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your Thebes-obsessed host, Liv. 
Now, today we are back with another conversation, as promised, and it begins with an apology to my guest, Megan Cleveland, who is joining me to talk all of the study that she has done on Statius's Thebaid. Thebaid? I... Anyway, it's about Thebes. Um, we recorded this episode back in March of 2022. It has been a very long time. And the reason is that, like, as you'll hear in the episode, I originally intended to do this whole big series of episodes covering the Thebaid before airing this so that, you know, you all had the necessary context of the story because it sounds so good. And Megan really sold me on it. But then while, like, I looked at the epic and I realized how long it was and I wasn't sure if you all, you know, my listeners or I was ready for a multi-part series that long. Like, it would have been longer than the Iliad and the Odyssey because of how detailed I am now. And so I just kept putting it off and thus kept putting off Megan's episode. But when I hit this very Rome month of episodes, I realized that we really just need to hear all the things that Megan has to share about the epic, whether or not we have heard the story itself. And, you know, we will get to the story itself the epic itself, eventually. But for now, the Thebaid is a Roman epic, but it tells the story of Greek myth, very in the vein of Seneca. You know, it's a very Roman thing to do. Uh, And actually, Statius was writing only shortly after Seneca. And based on some of the wild-ass violence that Megan mentions happening in this epic, I think you can really see the time period that both of these writers their work and they were working in you know it it really only adds to the intrigue like when you're living under Nero like shit's gonna go down you know and like I said one day I will make a huge series on this epic but until then the basics are this think back to my episodes on Sophocles's Oedipus and then further back to my episodes on Sophocles's Antigone and Euripides's Phoenician women the epic revolves around the ramifications of Oedipus's family and then the war between the brothers, his sons, over who will take the throne of Thebes. Of course, there is, there's so much more to it uh, because it's a whole-ass epic, but that is basically what you need to know, other than what Mega is going to share. I've also linked to the Wikipedia page for the epic if you wanted to read a bit about it yourself. Honestly, though, even just re-listening to this conversation after so long, it really just made me want to dive back into that work. So hopefully we won't be too far off from that on the podcast. But as I started saying, huge, enormous apologies to Megan for how long this took to air and equally enormous thanks for her incredible and kind patience. But I'm so glad to finally have it for you all. Unfortunately, we did also have a connection issue when we recorded that meant sometimes our replies to each other were seriously delayed. So if you're thinking like, hmm, Liv usually interjects more than this. That's absolutely why. Because yeah, I normally do. You'll also hear a lot about a novel that Megan's written about the children of Oedipus and Jocasta, so you'll absolutely hear more from her on the show to talk about that. And we also speak of my own novel, um, but again, this was recorded a while ago, so I just want to, I don't want you all getting ideas that I've, you know, gotten any further into it or getting it to be reality, because I haven't. One day, maybe, I kept it all in because I've heard from all of you that you, you, you like you know, hearing about people talking about their writing processes and and particularly how frustrating and never-ending it can be. Um, you know, we can all live in our misery together. Because <laughs> isn't that the truth? Until then, we can always use more Thebes on the podcast, especially one featuring such fascinating and, well, violent characters. Conversations 
When Romans write Greek myth, Statius's Thebeid with Megan Cleveland. I don't remember exactly what other than just Thebes you told me we were going to talk about. And I was so excited that I just have kept <laughs> writing Thebes all in caps everywhere that I've planned this. Yes. <laughs> so tell me, wh- what about Thebes do you study? What about Thebes are we going to talk about? I'm so excited. <laughs> okay, so um, today we're going to talk about the Thebaid, which is a Roman epic about right. Thebes. Oh, but like... <laughs> That's okay. I've been studying Thebes like I've been out of grad school for a couple years, but I've been doing like an independent study because I'm writing a book about Thebes. So I've been learning all this stuff. So even if we're talking about this Roman depiction of Thebes, we can still talk about Greek Thebes because I have that background there too. So we're going to talk about this extremely violent, fun, (laughs) epic by Statius. And so... Okay, I have not read his Thebiad, but is it like, um, like say, the Fall of Troy, the Roman epic that's based on maybe probably an ancient Greek epic that we don't have? So is this one assumed to be like based on, you might be about to tell me this, but it's of course my first question is, is it assumed to be based on the, the ancient like Theban cycle that we think existed? Yeah, so it certainly has some connection to that lost epic, but um, like other presentations of Thebes that we get from, say, like the Greek playwrights, he puts his own spin on it. So we can't be sure what is like in that lost right. epic and what was Station's own invention. So we'll just have to see, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a story of lost epic, right? It's like, who knows? But hey, we have it. That's what matters, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. So are you ready to start? <laughs> Please dive right in. <laughs> okay. So um, from when we talked about before, I'm assuming you're going to do a little um, series on the divide where you read it. So I'm not going to summarize it. I'm just going to go straight in and talk about what I think is interesting about it. Please. All right. So the the Bayad is <laughs> an epic about the war between the sons of Oedipus and about the destruction of Thebes. So when you think about Thebes, you think about the Sphinx. And in the Thebaid, we get this image of the Sphinx as she falls to her death. And she dashes what Statius describes as her album on the rocks. And this image can be equated with the destruction of Thebes. And I'm going to have some Latin in here. I hope you don't mind. (laughs) Please. I don't know any Latin, so have at it. (laughs) All right. Great. So the noun alus can mean either belly or womb. So the belly of the Sphinx evokes the stomach of the monster that consumed so many Thebans, but it also evokes the womb of Jocasta, which um, received what it brought forth, which is my fancy way of saying she had sex with her son. Um, (laughs) Received what it brought forth. Oh my God. It took me a second. I had to. (laughs) so good. This is kind of like an informal version of something I did in grad school. So that was the grad school version. But like to break it down, she had sex with her son. So we've got that image of the womb receiving what it put forth, if that makes sense. So he's coming back. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) 
Let's not think oh, about yeah. it too much. Oh, that makes sense. I love it. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this word album, which can mean either belly or womb or both, it um, acts as this microcosm for the self-destructive state of the Thebaid. The way I think of it is like an Ouroboros. Have you seen one of those? It's that snake that swallows its own tail. So it's like yeah. consuming itself. So we're also going to talk about the word um, consumption today. So uh, Statius communicates this self-destruction through the verb consumo. So consumo can have three different meanings. It can mean to waste, to destroy, or to devour. And there's three characters of the Thebaid that embody these three different meanings of consumo. Adrastus wastes. Polynices destroys and Tidius devours. And each of these figures share in common the stigma of familial violence. So I believe that the stigma of familial violence contributes to that destructive nature of consumption in the epic. The less distance between the character and the act of violence itself, the more the character is associated with destructive consumption. Um, Adrastus is um, a descendant of Tantalus. And because he's like a distant descendant, that removes him from the stigma of filicide. So he's considered to be one of the few good characters. But he's the responsible for um, the waste of Argive men in a Theban war. Polynices, the son of Oedipus, is close to the stigma of patricide and incest committed by his father, and he's ultimately responsible for the destruction of Thebes and the end of the line of Oedipus through his war with Eteocles. And Tydeus, my favorite, <laughs> he bears the stigma of fratricide, a crime he notably committed himself. Um, there's a line in the um, epic that says, Polutes fratino sanguine Tydeus, Tydeus stained with a brother's blood. Of all the characters, Tidius represents the most destructive force of consumption by becoming a cannibal in book eight. So we will get to that today. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. You might be interested to know about Tidius, that he is the father of a well-known character from the Iliad. Um, there's two different ways of pronouncing it, but I say Diomedes. So um, Odysseus's friend and another favorite oh, yeah. of Athena's. Yeah, so... Before um, Diomedes was born, Tydeus was also a famous, sorry, a favorite of Athena's. So we're also going to think of that when we talk about him too. So did you have any questions? I've said his name so many times just, <laughs> yeah, I've said his name so many times just because of, of like, I guess him being Diomedes' son. Um, but then also i'm like this is one of the few moments in the past podcast that i'm actually legitimately embarrassed by so we'll see if i keep it in but like when i was reading the iliad i was first pronouncing it tedious which i hate and i don't know why i thought of it it being that and then i changed it like midway through because people were laughing at me oh. it's like one of those things where i'm like damn tedious you really got me <laughs> This thing with studying Greek and Latin is you're never really sure how to pronounce it because it's not really spoken language anymore, no. right? So you could be right. I could be wrong. So it doesn't really matter. I know. One just sounds funnier. And for me, it's only because <laughs> like like, I also, when I started reading the Iliad, like Tidious, yeah. yeah. Like I, I started reading the Iliad and it, uh, like I read it and I, 
I didn't read it beforehand. Like, I mean, I've read the Iliad, but I didn't like read that version beforehand. I just sit down with it in front of me and this microphone and I just go for it. So I'm like Mm -hmm. guessing all these pronunciations, like literally in the split second. And sometimes it causes for some funny things. (sighs) I understand. It's quite all right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm also good at tangents. No, that's okay. I I will get sucked in and I will just go off if, if we do that. So it'll be fun at least. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we talk about the three characters in more depth, I want to talk quickly about Jupiter, who is the Roman Zeus. So the Thebaid starts um, with a council of the gods that's gathered by Jupiter. And he declares that he's decided to punish a specific group of mortals. And Statius describes Jupiter's decision um, to punish them is due to his insatiable appetite for violence. And Jupiter directs this insatiable violence towards the royal houses of Argos and Thebes. So we've got this line that Jupiter says, Nunc geminis punere domos quis sanguinis auctor, ipsi ego descendo, perseus autor in Argos, skinitor ionius fluit hic abit origine Thebes. Now I descend to punish two houses, of which blood I myself am the ancestor. One branches into Argos and the other into Thebes. So it's really interesting that <laughs> Jupiter is punishing these mortals for these pun- uh, crimes against the gods. And he considers these an offense to him. And to remedy this, he decides to destroy them. But he also acknowledges that he's related to them. And he somehow inherited, they've inherited his violence. So again, we've got that sort of Ouroboros. He's punishing them for something that they inherited through him. So that's interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to suggest Jupiter acquired this mentality from his father, Saturn, or Cronus. So Jupiter becomes like Saturn through his need to destroy his own descendants, although not in such a literal form of consumption, because as we know, Saturn tried to eat all of his children. The influence of Saturn... (laughs) Did he ever? Oh, he did. I'm thinking of that painting by Goya right now, which is my favorite. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Always. (laughs) The uh, influence of Saturn can explain the proem, which features fathers who wish harm upon their children. In the proem, Oedipus invokes Tisiphone, who's one of the Furies, to curse his sons. A curse Jupiter hears himself, and it motivates his decision to um, punish Thebes and Argos. So Jupiter decides to punish Thebes and Argos. That character, uh, Drastus, that I talked about before, he is the king of Argos. And there's a lot of scholarship on the Thebaid that used to emphasize the innocence of Argives and that there was this widely held belief that Argos was dragged into war by an unjust Jupiter and that Argos was an innocent city corrupted by civil war. Um, However, there is some research by a scholar named Ruth Parks who argues that Statius places the emphasis on Theban guilt. However, Argos, through their ancestral stigma, becomes complicit in Theban guilt through their support of Polynices. Adrastus, like I mentioned before, is considered to be one of the few good and compassionate characters in the poem. Yet, we get these repeated um, connections between Adrastus and the monstrous figure of Tantalus. Hmm. 
when we first meet Adrastus, he sees Polynices and he tells Polynices that his connection to Oedipus is impossible to hide, but he argues that Polynices doesn't have to let that become a part of his identity. And he offers Polynices a new identity by removing, I guess, Oedipus as his father by an offering himself. So Adrastus lets uh, Polynices marry his daughter Argia. And little um, fun fact for you is the wedding gift Polynices gives to Arya is a certain necklace that used to belong to Harmonia, and that <gasps> necklace signifies uh, that their marriage is cursed. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that is one cursed necklace. I love it so much. Okay, mm. that leads me to a question. Not the necklace, yeah. but I want. I, I mean, if I wish there was more to talk about with the necklace because I feel like there's not. But also, I'm desperately like devoted to it as an idea. But how does Adrastus get this separation from? the curse of Tantalus when he is in the like generation before like, okay, sorry. I'm like Mm -hmm. trying to phrase my question, I guess. Where is like, (laughs) basically where does like Agamemnon's parents, like, uh, you know, Atreus and Thyestes, like, where do they come in? Do they like bring the curse back and Adrastus like didn't have the curse. And then, and then are they next in the line and it's like, oh, you're fucked again? Oh, like, when you study mythology, you you know that, like, there's no timeline. They're oh, all I, existing yeah. at the same time. It's no. like a multiverse. Just, right? And I, like, obviously I say that literally all the time because my listeners are always asking me these types of questions. But it feels to me like the one kind of line of, of like, cursed family members that was pretty static felt like that was the you know the tantalus to agamemnon through line so mm-hmm. i'm just i'm interested in adrastus in that way because it feels to me which is again like super possible that this all like this whole story then is like tacked on later because you have this guy who's not cursed because it's like clearly there is this deeply cursed line that leads all the way to agamemnon and then he feels so out of place. It's just really interesting in that way. Like, I love those little moments where you're like, mm, was this thrown in later where you were just like, he's not cursed. Oh, how lucky he was far enough away from Tantalus. He's not cursed. <laughs> well, you picked up on something that scholars have kind of been arguing about for hundreds of years. There's a bunch of different traditions of how he's related to Tantalus. But the one I'm going to focus on my argument here is that um, Adrastus is related to Tantalus through the figure of Niobe which is really interesting. Yeah. So, um, so the popular tradition is that Adrastus is related to Tantalus, the murder of his own child through Niobe, who's infamous for her act of hubris concerning her children. So like Adrastus, Niobe wastes lives. She wastes the lives of her children through her pride, just as Adrastus wastes the lives of Argive men through his generosity to Polynices. Uh, uh, Adrastus' generosity to Polynices and Tydeus. Um, Tydeus is also offered one of Adrastus' daughters as his wife, so they become brothers through marriage. And he is generous to them, and through his generosity, it's an extension of his role as hospice or host, which is a role that Tantalus was playing when he committed his crime of filicide. So Adrastus 
in this way, he's presented as a naive figure because his hubris is trying to escape that ancestral stigma of his house, a stigma he claims doesn't matter when, in fact, we know um, it's the motivation of Jupiter's punishment. It matters. Oh, yeah. It always matters, man. <laughs> and he, he tries to use like his own version of reverse psychology. So instead of hiding his connection to Tantalus, he flaunts it. He he has pictures of him on his banners. He has a statue of him in the hall of his ancestors. And he has his army call themselves the army of the descendants of Tantalus. So he's really like broadcasting it to everybody to try to I guess show like, oh, it's not something to hide, but it's having the opposite effect. It should be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, and through this, this weird way of trying to escape his ancestral stigma by flaunting it. So he's trying to change his fate. So he becomes like Oedipus too, because he's trying and failing to escape that fate that's been placed on him, which is that connection to Tantalus, which is the reason that him and his family are going to be not, he doesn't get destroyed. He's the, actually the only character of the seven that actually lives. The rest of them all die, but his family's ruined forever mm. after this. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you're a descendant of Tantalus. Like, sorry. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we got to keep in mind all these connections to ancestors. Cause if we still have time, I want to talk about uh, the historical context in which this is written. So it might, um, have some significance Mm. later. So the next character that I was going to talk about is Polynices. Polynices, as we know, is a product of incest. Um, In the epic, he's an exile, denied his birthright and wandering Greece. He's given the opportunity to change his fate. Through his marriage to Argia, Adrastus gives Polynices the gift of another father, another kingdom, and a new brother in Titius. Yet Polynices' desire to take vengeance on Ateocles and to regain his rightful throne consumes him and destroys any happiness for both himself and everyone around him. So, like I said before, Jupiter is transmitting his insatiable violence to his Theban and Argive descendants, and there's a dominant belief that the Thebans are more subject to this mentality than the Argives because um, the Furies have come out of the underworld and they're kind of like acting like the puppet masters and controlling the actions of Ateocles and Polynices. Uh, Polynices' desire for... It is really cool. Um, When you read it, you're really going to like it because there's a lot of snake imagery that you might want to have some influence in with your book on Cadmus. So there's lots of snakes involved. (laughs) So uh, Polynesia. I'm excited. (laughs) It's a really great book. I'm excited for when you do an episode about it. So Polynices' desire for power destroys the lives of everyone around him. Polynices only realizes the destructive force of his desire for power when Tydeus dies. When he learns of his friend's death, Polynices has that, like, you know, cinematic moment where he screams to the sky and he says, uh, Nil opus arma otto temptere et perdere mortes, ite precor quidiam dabitas mihi denique maius tidea consumsi. There's no need to prove arms any further and to waste any more deaths. Go, I beg you. What else can you give me? I've destroyed Tidius. So there's this um, Mm. scholar named Neil Coffey, whose um, research a lot of this is based on. 
he points out that Polynices only rejects the consumption of lives in response to the death of its most avid consumer. He argues that Statius draws together these two different forms of consumer. So Polynices destroys and Tidius consumes, or sorry, devours. And by contrasting these, um, so we contrast Polynices' use of violence to that of his friends. So Polynices' use of violence, it's just kind of, selfish he doesn't realize he's doing it he's so focused on getting what he wants he doesn't really notice the casualties that are happening because of him whereas Tidius is a bit more um he's he knows what he's doing <laughs> that's what I'm gonna say about that so, <laughs> he takes he has a certain appetite and pleasure in violence that Polynices doesn't and even though after Tidius mm. dies and he's realized that he's wasted all these lives, you think in this moment Polonices will have a change of heart and maybe he'll be like, oh, you know what, Adrastus, maybe I will go back to Argos and become king like he suggested and just focus on my new family. But no, he wants to go to Thebes. He wants to destroy it because they don't accept him and he wants to kill his brother. So despite the lessons he learns along the way, Polonices is still... Um, focused on killing his brother and destroying Thebes. I love family curses and family mistakes. I mean, God, Thebes. <laughs> and there's Thebes so and much Argos. of it. They're both so cursed. Yeah, they're all cursed in Greece, aren't they, in some way? Ancient Greece, I should say, not modern Greece. Um, so, <laughs> now you're going to talk about Tidius, which is a very interesting guy. So if there's Ever a character that's associated with the word consumo, it's Tidius, who literally consumes his enemy. There's a number of arguments concerning what motivates Tidius to perform his act of cannibalism in Book 8. Uh, there's a scholar named Herskoes who wrote in Patterns of Madness in Statius's The Biad that Tidius is driven by an excess of madness, which was held in check by that um, figure of Athena. Um... But as Tidius lays dying, Athena steps away to go ask Jupiter's permission to grant Tidius immortality because she thinks he deserves um, to become a god. But when she steps away, that madness consumes him and he's driven to commit this terrible act. And when she comes back to tell him the good news, she kind of has this moment where she's like, oh, and she has to like cover her eyes and walk away and she doesn't offer him immortality because she's so disgusted by what he did. Ooh. There's a, uh, another scholar, uh, Gervais, who was the um, professor who taught me the Thabiad at grad school. He has an article called Tidius the Hero, um, which argues that epic heroism can't function in the Thabiad. And instead of being modeled on epic heroes, Tidius is more often modeled on the monsters that heroes vanquish. And Tidius's cannibalism results from a breakdown between those two identities. Hmm. That's really interesting. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I know I'm listing a lot of things, but it's just what it's like to study Epic is you've got hundreds of years of people's opinions and you have to go through them and decide, well, what do I think based on what these people think, right? So there was some research done by these two people named Braun and Gilbert who um, discuss how Epic similes reflect um, the era of Epic warriors. And they argue that Tidius is... 
Titius represents the negative manifestation of Ira, an emotion which usually benefits heroes in epic. So Ira means wrath. And we know from the Iliad that this is the motivating force that drives Achilles because it opens um, same goddess of the wrath of Achilles. So usually wrath is this sort of positive force because it um, drives the heroes to uh, achieve their goals. But here, um, Tydeus, he doesn't have, <laughs> he's, he's immoderate in his, his wrath, so he can't control it, and it just kind of drives him insane, and he goes out of hand and not like the other heroes. So it's like that moment where Achilles desecrates Hector's body, but times 10, he's just, he's just letting it get away with him. That's the thing. Yeah, no, it's just the thing about like the Iliad starting with like saying of the wrath of Achilles is like as much as Achilles is a hero, I think that's what makes the Iliad so interesting is that it really is all about like him being over the top and it being like, like, yeah, this is a story of like so-called heroes, but also the whole thing revolves around the fact that this guy has a temper tantrum (laughs) and like so much shit results from it. That, like, you know, everyone's kind of fucked in all of these different ways. And so it's like, sure, like, wrath is motivating, but also it is destructive. Yeah. And in the Thibayat, it's just that times 10. I like how you describe that. It's a guy having a temper tantrum. Yeah. In this, it's Polynices having the temper tantrum. It's his turn to be king, but the Tiflis <laughs> won't let him have his turn. So he's going to destroy the city instead. And no one will get their turn, right? It's like toddlers. <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's like toxic masculinity. <laughs> oh yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> so um, there's here. This is an interesting note for you. So when um, Tidius is laying there dying, he's delivered this mortal blow, mortal blow by a Theban soldier named Melanippus. And Melanippus is lying there dying next to him. And Tydeus asks the Argive soldiers around him to bring the body to him so he can, like, start eating it. And all of the soldiers who help move Melanippus's body to be consumed by Tydeus have ancestors um, tainted by familial violence. So the soldiers that bring the body to them have Tantalus, Atreus, Lycaon, and Onomias as their ancestors. So it's it's funny how Atreus can be someone's dis- or ancestor because he's kind of, if you think about it, he should be just existing in Mycenae at this time because Atreus is the father of Agamemnon. Yeah. Tydeus is the father of Diomedes. So this is the generation before the fall of Troy. So it should be this like timeline, like a straight line, but it's just all over the place. So Atreus yeah. can be contemporary, but also an ancestor of one of these guys. So it's kind of interesting that way. Yeah, that is super interesting. That's like, I mean, I just, yeah, that's one of my favorite things of like the ways that things just don't, they don't match up chronology is not a thing (laughs) no and like it's a it's a nice way to think of even the ancient poets themselves they're like i don't know i'm just gonna make atreus be super old so it'll prove my own point (laughs) so he's like a grad student in that way (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, in this uh, moment of his death, Tidius kind of becomes the Sphinx because he's devouring the Thebans. So he fully um, transgresses mm -hmm. that boundary between a hero and into a monster. It's weird that I'm so excited about him, but I used to really like the show Hannibal. So maybe that's why I like Tidius so much. He's just <laughs> a really interesting guy. I mean, I... I love the absolute weirdest people in Greek mythology. Like, I I mean, I love that there is cannibalism because, I mean, again, I, this is Roman, but like Roman about Greek mythology, which is interesting in itself. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, like cannibalism is very rare, but it is also Tantalus, you know, like it it is like Tantalus is the most famous and then Thyestes too, especially if we're talking if like Atreus and Thyestes are ancestors when they should be contemporaries, mm -hmm. like those are your two most famous acts of cannibalism that result in crazy curses. Yeah. And I guess the same argument can be applied to the house of Atreus that by having this cannibalism connection, it's this sort of microcosm of their self-destructive family. So instead of creating new life, they're destroying it and they're literally consuming it. So they're not being able to procreate, if that makes sense. So yeah, it's just, mm -hmm. it's a really interesting way to use cannibalism. So it's symbolic, but also in this particular Roman epic, it's there for the shock factor as well. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. I love that phrasing though. Again, you got some good, some good, like gross and well said things. <laughs> I know it is really gross and, um, that one scholar I mentioned before, um, Kyle Gervais, who was one of my professors, he has an article out comparing Statius, who's the um, author of this epic, to Quentin Tarantino. So he's basically the Tarantino of ancient Rome. There's oh, a yeah. lot of blood. There's a lot of gore. People are like, it's entertaining, but it's a little bit too much, right? And that's kind of how <laughs> this... Um, Poetry from the historical period that produced this poem is viewed as this poetry of excess. And it's not, and for hundreds of years, it was viewed as not being very good poetry and inferior to the poetry that came before it. But I thought we could talk some more about that because that was all I was going to discuss about the Thebaid itself, unless you had some questions about it. I, I mean, I'm, it's so hard because, of course, I decided we wanted to record this so that I we just wanted to talk about it and I'm like I still <laughs> read this so but I know the story so it's it's interesting because I know the story that it's based on you know like I've covered um I've covered what's the Euripides I did the the Phoenician women oh, yeah. I covered it under that version because so I find that interesting just because it focuses more on Jocasta and it's yeah because it's like it's such a famous story the seven against thebes like it's all of it right mm -hmm. um but then this this roman take that makes it more violent and more visceral and adds cannibalism and curses and stuff is just so much more interesting and so i'm just more like now i'm really excited to read it <laughs> yeah it's like it's like ovid like i know you okay. prefer ancient greek sources but you also love ovid because ovid, but ovid. So <laughs> 
Yeah, he has this way of describing those myths in a way that really appeals to modern readers, right? There's that, um, there's the pathos, so there's all this emotion and there's betrayals and love and lust and everything. So the Roman writers are really good at adding the emotion to stories that sometimes the Greeks don't quite have there. Yeah, I think it, I always describe it as like, and I this is just my own theory, but I think of it as because the Greeks these were their ancestral stories versus the Romans were like commenting on existing stories. The Romans didn't have the same connection historically to the stories. And so they, they had this like different viewpoint on them. It's almost like they were more fictionalizing them. Like they were the Hollywood making movies off of Shakespeare or something, you know? So it, it like they had this huge disconnect in terms of time and culture. So they have this really different, and much more dramatic and like cinematic take on these existing stories. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it because they're so far removed from the history and the culture of ancient Greece. So um, in classical Greece, the Greeks were kind of driven by Sophrosune. So like this, this idea that everything should be in order, everything should be like be moderated so you don't have this excess of emotion. And it just kind of draws into philosophy as well of how to be a good person is you don't have these excess of emotion. Whereas the um, Romans, they love their excess. They're like, let's go for it. Let's make it as gory as we can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like hugely different people and time periods. And I think so often, unless you're like deep in the world of the ancient Mediterranean, like you often see them as much more contemporary than they were, at least when you're talking about the stories that we talk about like obviously a lot of their cultures were contemporary and existed alongside each other but like if we're talking about the Iliad versus you know Ovid or versus this guy versus the Thebiad like we've got it there's such a huge amount of time in between that mm-hmm. you often forget just how many hundreds of years is in between these two periods and so why they are so different and and like just how different they were as people and their stories and and they're like the reasons they did things, the reasons they told stories, all these different things are just so different because there is so much time in between. Exactly. And I know I mentioned Ovid a lot, but there's a lot of time in between Ovid and Statius himself too. So there's this... um... I meant to ask when he's from. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I can give you some historical context. So I'm excited about this. So um, you can talk about Rome. I mean, the Thebaid without talking about ancient Rome. So like I mentioned before, the Thebaid is an epic poem and it's written in the silver age of Latin poetry. And to explain what that is, I have to talk about Augustus. I know you don't really like him, but we're going to talk about him a little bit. (laughs) So (laughs) after a series of terrible civil wars, Augustus becomes the first emperor of Rome and he establishes this uh, first imperial family, the Julio-Claudians. And the importance of the imperial family, most notably the emperor himself, is established through a a system of images and symbols in official art. The beginning of Augustus's rule is called the Golden Age. And poets of the Golden Age include Horace and Virgil. And they are writing to glorify the peace and prosperity that was brought by Augustus's reign. So the golden age was a period of political and cultural stability and harmony, whereas the silver age was marked by 
the descent into oppressive autocracy. So Ovid is writing between the transition between the golden and the silver age. So you have this peace and prosperity brought by Augustus at the beginning of his reign. And then he gets a little too used to power. He starts making these rules and Ovid, we don't know what he did, but he got exiled. So he's one of the first of those silver poets that kind of suffers for their poetry. And um, this poetry of the silver age is characterized by either a literature of escapism or protest. The Thebaid is written much later than Augustus and Ovid, which was the Julio-Claudian period. It was written under the reign of Domitian, who was the last of the Flavian emperors and notably the worst of them. So here we see this link of a literature mm. of escapism or possibly protest under the rule of a supposedly oppressive emperor. The link between emperors and poets is a really important one because epic poetry is a really difficult and time-consuming form of art. Um, in the class where we read the Thebaid, our professor, um, he had us try to write our own verse compositions. So we were writing dactylic hexameter in Latin. It took us three months to do five lines, Liv. Can you imagine doing 12 books of this? So you need to have the time and the resources <sighs> oh to sit God. down and do it, right? So the, the emperor is there to help facilitate the poetry, to make sure it gets written. But in return, your poetry has to serve to elevate the empire and the emperor in some way in return for that um, support. In the Augustan age, there was... Uh, sort of go-betweens the emperor and the, and the poet. And there were guys named Messala and Messinus who um, patronized the poets like Horace and Virgil. I don't remember who um, Statius's patron was per se, but his poetry is inextricably linked to Domitian. He actually mentions Domitian in the poem. And for a very long time, the Thebaid was considered like not a good poem because of this connection to Domitian. And it's really interesting to see how that connection changed and evolved over time. Because in um, Statius' own time, he was really popular. He's mentioned by name by Juvenal. And even after he's dead, um, in the medieval period and even in the Renaissance, he's still popular. He influenced a lot of the allegorical writings by medieval writers, and he was a big influence for Dante's uh, Inferno. But um, around the 18th century, this view on Statius kind of changes. Statius is seen as a poet that's not a very good one and his poem is just full of um, blood and violence and nothing else. And it's interesting to note that there's this decline in his popularity in the 18th century. And instead we've got this rise in popularity of Virgil in the 18th century, where we're also seeing the rise of the nation state. So we know Virgil was writing under Augustus mm. and his poetry kind of, includes Augustine ideals of empire making. So we can see why the 18th century people would be more of a fan of Virgil when they're trying to colonize the world, right? And it's not until... I was just going to yell the word colonialism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's basically it. And it's not until the 1980s where we see this rise in stasis again. So that's hundreds of years later. And this is also connected to the decline in the view of Virgil because there was a lot of scholarship being done in the 1980s where um, readings of Roman history and uh, Augustus are connected to 20th century dictators. So um, there's this one Mm. scholar named Ronald Syme who kind of connects Augustus with Hitler a little bit and like Goebbels um in how he used this propaganda so i'm not saying here that virgil's like hitler but there was this sort of rise in scholarship at that time connecting emperors to dictators so going off that if you're a roman poet and you have to connect your poetry to the emperor and the empire in some way what do you do when the emperor you're connected to is a bad one like, can you outright say he's bad or do you have to be really clever with how you're writing? So that's an interesting way of reading the Thebaid, because if we look at the themes of self-destruction and the themes of familial violence, and we're looking at the Julio-Claudians and the Flavians, which are ultimately failed dynasties, right? So are they being punished? Are their dynasties ending because of the crimes of their the people that came before I don't know. Is that what Statius is saying? That's something someone could write a paper yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, certainly like you're writing this story like, yes, it's it's Greece. It's Greek mythology. Oh, it just happened to be these guys who like, oh, do, do you think they they resemble the, the you know, dynasties that came before? Oh, I don't know. Oh, it must be a coincidence. Hmm. Like. <laughs> there's there's an element of the the bayad that you're really gonna hate because in it we get the figure <laughs> of theseus so theseus kind of comes in just like mm. save the day so you know how in um antigone after the war between Ateocles and polynices creon is the king of thebes and creon goes a little bit power mad well in the end of the Thebaid, Creon and Theseus <laughs> had this like single combat moment where Theseus and Athens kind of prevail over the violence of Thebes. So, and he makes, Astatius makes all these connections between um, Theseus and Domitian. But even the ancients themselves huh. know that Theseus isn't quite a good guy. So what do you think Domitian would have thought of this connection between him and Theseus? So that's another thing someone could write a paper about. Oh. I'd like to read that. Well, and Theseus, though, yeah, Theseus is so interesting because, like, he is, like, objectively shitty, but depending on how you wanted to see him, like, you could see him as this, like, objectively really shitty dude, or you can see him as the guy who founded Athenian, you know, or the laid the foundations for Athenian democracy. Like he also can very much be seen as like kind of an Aeneas figure almost Mm -hmm. where it's like, he started the thing that would go on to be the great thing that they, you know, want to believe. So like, I can see, you know, he does all this shit, but like he really is so often used in really similar propaganda style ways. Like even this, this feels like Athenian propaganda because like, hello, like Theseus is a much later invention than the mythological characters that actually take part in this war. Theseus, it's like Theseus is not, he's very much post, you know, Iliad and Odyssey. 
And and so I love when anyone tries to like stick him in in these weird places he doesn't belong. The way that he gets just put into these different things, though, because there are a lot of cases where he's like kind of tucked in later as if like he played this important role in something where you're like, nah, like he was a later invention to make Athens feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. I I like the way you co- um, compare him to Aeneas because Aeneas and the Aeneid is really important for the Thebaid because um, a lot of the Thebaid looks back to the example set by Virgil's Aeneid, but instead of just um, using the template that Virgil set, Statius is inverting the message of the Aeneid. So there's some particular examples in there, like women in the Aeneid, they're considered to be a bad thing because they're delaying the hero from um, achieving his goal. But in the Thebaid... That died a real troublemaker. <laughs> in the Thebaid, women also like act to delay the hero from achieving their goal, but it's a good thing because the goal of the heroes is to um, take on thieves. And we all know that this is the reason they're all going to die and the thieves is going to be destroyed. So women in the epic are actually really good characters because they're trying to stop this destruction, which is really interesting that he would take that template set by Virgil and kind of turn it on its head. Yeah, like, oh, ladies aren't so bad. Not all the time, at least. (laughs) Like, I should have talked about it more, but um, maybe you can find another scholar who studies the the, the Thebiot to talk about the presentation of women. Um, Polynices' wife, Argia, Mm. is really interesting. And there's this whole situation where they meet the women of Lemnos, and Hypsipyle is an important character in the middle of the Thebiot as well. So that's something. Really? Yeah. It's, I guess, like, again, with that connection with the Aeneid, Aeneas is kind of prevented from founding Rome by that kind of um, pit stop in Carthage. So the seven are kind of delayed from their journey to Thebes by going to Lemnos, and they kind of get caught up in what's going on there, and they're trying to sort of help Hypsipyle in some way. I love that because I want Hypsipyle to be in it, but also that is the biggest pit stop. Like that is so far away. Like I know between Argos and Thebes, they are very close to each other. Like they're they're like I'm I'm like showing this on the screen. Nobody's gonna see this in the episode. They are very close to each other, and then Lemnos is like out on the other side of the sea. Why would that's great? That's an amazing. That's an amazing thing because it doesn't make any sense and I love that. Like why? Okay. I think in, in the in the Thebaid, um, Bacchus or Dionysus, he also wants to delay the inevitable destruction of Thebes because Thebes is that's his special place, right? So he kind of diverts them on yeah. their on their way there. So he's kind of acting like the Juno figure in um the Aeneid. Yeah. I love this. This is so great. I can't wait to read this. It's it's really like it's crazy, oh gosh, but it's fun. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I bet. Oh my god, yeah, I'm so in on this. This is like, oh, what what a weird diversion and hypsipyle of all people. Like they're throwing in yet another timeline where you're like, mm, does this fully check out? Like <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah, trying to make a chronological map of Greek mythology is just <laughs> impossible, isn't it? 
Yeah, I know. I love when people try to ask me questions about that. And I sort of have a like standard line now of like, just don't trouble yourselves. You're, it, it's going to make your head hurt and you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. I think like mythological Greece is its time in its own self. So you can't really impose chronology on it at all. No, not when you've got like 500 years of people adding to stories yeah, and changing things and making their own versions. Like it's just, yeah, that's why everything changes. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's all I have in my notes. So um, any, so is there, oh, I mean, now I'm just so in on it. I'm just like, this is so interesting. I can't wait to read it. Of course, by the time this comes out, I'll have already presented it to the, uh, the listeners in some way. But now I'm just like super keen. I just think Thebes is... I mean, I know I love it because of Cadmus, but there's like so little you can actually read about Cadmus and Harmonia, you know, mm-hmm. in their actual like the time that they actually thrived in Thebes and everything else related to the city tends to be about like the aftermath, their children, the curses, Oedipus, the mess he made, like all these different things. But the city itself is just so interesting. And I just, yeah, I constantly want to know more about it. And now I'm so excited for this epic. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Did you want to talk more about Thebes? Because I had this whole art, like alternate script of talking about presentation of Thebes in Greek mythology and going all the way down to Rome. And I was like, no, that's going to be too long. Don't do it. So I cut it all out. But I can talk about it if you want to. <laughs> I mean, what are like, are there any like really notable things that like, what is the deal there? I mean, I okay. would love to hear more. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. 
Happy International Women's Day. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Well, like going off of what you just said, like you can't find a lot of information about Cadmus in that royal family of his. And it's kind of like Oedipus supplanted Cadmus in myth because Oedipus actually was more of a legendary character. Um, When you first see Oedipus mentioned, Mm. I think, and he sees his work in days and he's involved in a war over the loss of his sheep. So somehow between then and yeah, so he kind of evolves over time from this like folklore and legendary hero and he becomes part of the royal family of thieves and then all these stories come up around him and a lot of the stories are connected to like prophecies and when you look at the earlier versions, the incest isn't there. It's just the prophecy about him killing his father and like that's a whole other mm. episode we could do because I know a lot about weird prophecies as well. But it's just so interesting that Oedipus as a character kind of just came in and took over mythology of Thebes. Yeah, that's such the that's the perfect way of putting it because he really becomes like the guy when you're thinking about Thebes and talking about it in any way. And like his story is not ideal. So then you get this whole idea of Thebes being this less than ideal place. And like, obviously it's also majorly influenced by Sophocles' version specifically. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, like Sophocles is obviously Athenian. So it is like, while not outright propaganda, like it is an Athenian who is against Thebes writing about Thebes. So you have this like inherent kind of bias happening. And so we have so little that's like about Thebes by Thebans or like about the good people of Thebes like ultimately Cadmus seems like from the little that we know to be like this really like generally good character his worst flaw is that he gives up looking for his sister which yes is not ideal but I always think like 
if he knows that Zeus took her, he's kind of fucked trying to get her back. And <laughs> yeah. he just is kind of accepted that hopefully she has a good life with Zeus. Not good, but as far as like ancient Greek mythological men, it's by far not the worst. That's true. <laughs> and so it's like, he's just so interesting. And, and I just wish there was more all the time, basically. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the Athenian connection. There's a lot of um, scholarship about how Thebes kind of serves as the anti-Athens, where Athenians can um, discuss um, issues in Athens, but sort of like in a safe place because Thebes mythologically is destroyed, right? So if we put in some problems Athens are facing, mm -hmm. but transplant it to Thebes, it's not going to be a problem because we've set it in Thebes and not Athens. Yeah, because I mean, it, like obviously you have the Oedipus of it all, and then um, Bacchae too, mm -hmm. and like like not just Oedipus, but everything that comes after between Seven Against Thebes and then all the other plays that retell that story as well. And and yeah, you get to have all this commentary about life and decisions and rulership and kings versus not kings, all these different bits of commentary that you can do without without setting it in Athens and getting yourself into trouble. I always find that so interesting. Mm -hmm. And Statius is doing that, but like instead of talking about Rome, it's safe because we're talking about Thebes, but there's some connection to some problems in Rome as well. Ah. So Thebes is just this playing field to discuss your problems without actually really addressing them. Yeah, poor Thebes. Like, poor Thebes. That, it feels like they deserve better. Well, no, they definitely deserve better. Yeah. <laughs> um. So in the, like, um, sorry, no, now my brain lost it. Um. Was there more to say, though, about, like, the way that it does kind of like evolve into this um into this kind of different i don't know thing basically please feel free to keep sharing things but like, my brain is bad like how, how it evolves from oedipus like how oedipus yeah evolved? or like into this into this or into this stacious version like this you know ancient like i guess what you were what you had started saying about hesiod and i just wasn't sure if i cut you off and just started rambling about cadmus the difference of oedipus and works and days to the you know stasius's version of thebes right so we also see like first we see oedipus in the works and days we also see him well he's met he's not actually a character but he's sort of mentioned in the underworld episode in the odyssey there's a lot of discussion of Theban women, mm. and they talk about um, Epicasta. That's what they call Jocasta in um, Homer. And they mm -hmm. describe how once she finds out about the incest between her and her son, like it's immediately known to her. It doesn't come by later, so they don't have any children. So in the version that we see in Homer any children that he has to go on and like fight in Thebes aren't actually with the epicasta figure so it's just really interesting to see how mm. depending on what source you're looking at there's these really subtle differences in Statius, for example jocasta's alive she's in the castle like not the castle the palace the cadmia and she's talking to her kids and she's trying to get her sons to stop fighting and then you've got Oedipus is kind of living in the basement like Bruno in in Encanto. So he's kind of that guy who's there and nobody wants him around. <laughs> so it's just an interesting family dynamic that all these bad things happen, but they're not dead and they're kind of still living with each other and uncomfortable with each other. That's interesting because that's the same as in Euripides. In yeah. Phoenician women, like 
Oedipus is there, but he's just kind of like tucked away, being hidden, and Jocasta's there, like being strong and and cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. Jocasta's great. I love her. Um, I know exactly. That's why I was like, if I'm ever gonna tell the story of this war, like it's gonna be Oedipus's <laughs> version, where she's alive and well and doing cool stuff. <laughs> so. Uh, I feel like she does end up killing herself in it, though. But at least she lasts longer than in Sophocles. Mm-hmm. I've actually, <clears throat> I mentioned that I was writing about Thebes, and I've written a young adult version of this, but it's told from um, Oedipus's daughter's point of view. So instead of Antigone, it's Ismene. Mm. So it's like, <gasps> yes. she goes across Greece and she learns about all these cursed families and tries to discover what the curse on her family is and tries to use that to stop the war between her brothers. So that's what I was working oh, on. I love that. Yeah, I'm querying agents that's right great. now. That's great. Have you read? Um... Oh, good. So, I mean, now crossed. is the time, as I know well, because I've not finished mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you read The Children of Jocasta? I have. I actually had a, um existential crisis about it because I had written the first draft of the book, and then I learned that Natalie Haynes had actually written the story I wanted to first. And I was like, well, what's the point? If Natalie Haynes did it, it'll be better. But, um... I really like hers. It's really contained into like the Cadmia and Thebes itself, whereas my version's got a more broader scale. But Natalie Haynes is just great at everything yeah. she does. I know, I know. Um, yeah, no, I I feel the same way about so many things. Every time I read a new mythological retelling, I'm like, fuck, they're doing it first. But yours yeah. sounds very different, so I wouldn't ever worry about that. Um, and also YA, I think, is good. There's not a ton of mythological YA, but, like, YA is such a field for getting published. That's what I thought. Like, oh, there's no, not a lot of YA, so maybe more people will jump on it. We'll see, Liv. Like, mm-hmm. we'll see how many people are excited to read it. I've I've been there. I know that feeling very well. <laughs> so I wish you so much luck with it. Thank oh you. My gosh. I mean, yeah. No, I've been through it. I my first version was YA. Um, my book has gone through like eighteen different versions. It's mm-hmm. so stupid how many times I've tried to write this story. <laughs> I know exactly how you feel. I had some um agents were like, I like this, but I think you should change it and make it grittier and darker. And I was like, I have a grittier and darker version. I don't know which one to go with. So it really depends on who's reading it, right? I know. It's yeah, I think I mean, um, I like the idea of grittier and darker. That's kind of I'm not necessarily trying to make mine darker so much as I'm trying to make it like I think I just have really lofty goals now like Mm -hmm. it it I now want it to like encompass so many different things I've become obsessed with Samothrace so now I'm like well now we have to have this whole bit on Samothrace before they get to Thebes yeah so is it like following Cadmus's journey is it following Cadmus so it's like less about Cadmus yeah, like a little bit. Sorry, our delay is so bad with trying to spit <laughs> of it. Um, but yeah, the so like basically because there's this version where Harmonia is the daughter of Electra, who's the queen of Samothrace, mm. and and then Cadmus like goes there. That's mostly in um, in Nonus's Dionysiaca, which is like okay. that wild ass epic, and. So I'm, I've basically done like a lot from that epic and then kind of blended it all. So like, she's not the daughter of Electra, but Electra's like her adoptive mother and 
basically she was like put to be cared by Electra, but oh. she is the child of Aphrodite and Ares still. Um, and then so I'm now kind of so obsessed with the island of Samothrace and the Samothracian mysteries that I'm going to set probably one whole book on Samothrace wow. and I'm going to Samothrace at the end of June and I'm going to spend two weeks there and I'm going to fucking finish it. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. And then, so like Cadmus will come and like, he will have like, I'll subtly, like it's more about Harmonia, but I'm touching upon his story, searching for Europa and then ending up on Samothrace. Um, like just in smaller bits, like different perspectives and then they'll like eventually once I'm finished dealing with all my Samothracian mystery obsession, <laughs> then they'll go to Thebes and then I have to write a whole thing on Thebes too. But meanwhile, like all the other versions of my book did not even include Samothrace. It was just all about Thebes. And I actually like the very first versions, well, most of the original versions were um, involved, like actually like for lack of a more nuanced word time travel and i had which was like i literally like that original story and it was like modern people and like connecting back to ancient cadmus and harmonia and like this whole thing and i actually really loved it but it just d turned out to be not the book i wanted to write once i had the platform that i do mm -hmm. like i just wanted to be more like ancient and then also i think it is more appealing to the audiences right now and then of course now i'm obsessed with samothrace yeah, and like, I just need to write out Samothrace all the time. I can see it in my head, like Harmonia, like Circe or Ariadne. So, like, this sounds really great. I'm working on it. Yeah, <laughs> I want it to be like, I don't know. I'm not very. My biggest issue because of the podcast is that I'm really good at storytelling, but I'm not really good at like character development because uh, I don't develop characters I I read myths and so I really that's why it's never done because I really struggle with like the part of writing a novel that is like the most important which is like the fiction the inventing the like the creation of these people <laughs> but meanwhile I'm like but the myths um so that's yeah that's like my biggest hurdle which is why I'm kind of I'm literally just going to spend two weeks on Samothrace just writing because there's like nothing on Samothrace except for pretty scenery and the um, sanctuary of the mysteries. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And it's so little and weird and cheap to be there because it's not a big touristy Island. Yeah. And yeah, I'm excited. Well, it'll add a lot of <laughs> richness and depth to your descriptions of it. So it's going to be amazing. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'll be like away from my house and I'll be able to write it because otherwise <laughs> yeah. I'm just like always working on the podcast and I never do any creative writing. It's so bad. And oh my gosh. Well, this is devolved. I love talking. Books, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Do you have, um... I'm excited for yours though. That's a great idea. Thank you. Sorry. Go ahead. Do you have like, <laughs> um, beta readers that like are familiar with Greek myth and also like writing commercial literature or are you just kind of like, I can't show this to anybody because I'm afraid they'll steal my ideas kind of thing? <laughs> my, I'm a little bit of that because Harmonia and Cadmus are so untouched. Yeah. So untouched. Like, and I love that. And I have had them in my head since 2008 wow. when I started writing the first versions of this. Yes. So I'm like deeply protective over them as characters. <laughs> um, my agent, because I have an agent through the podcast and I 
thank the gods ended up finding this podcast agent who works for a literary agency. Oh, great. So in getting an agent for my podcast, I got a literary agent by default, which was very exciting for me because my books, I don't think are good enough yet for an agent, but my podcast is, so it worked out. Um, Yeah, so my agents read like a version but I got so obsessed with the mysteries and Samothrace that I wrote like a 70,000 word novel where like nothing happened oh. because I was so obsessed with the myth. So now I have to like rewrite it and make it into a thing where it has like all the structure of a novel, like what a concept. And I have mm-hmm. to, you know, all those different things that I struggle with because I'm used to just telling myths. So it's interesting. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's really the only person who's read it. Yeah. Well, if you're ever- How about you? Have you worked with people on yours? I have. Oh, yeah, no, please also okay. offer because I didn't want to ask. <laughs> no, no, I was going to say, if you wanted like a beta reader slash critique partner, like I'd be happy to bounce your ideas off of because you're right. It's so hard to write mythology, but in a way that's fun to read about because my first draft was just people telling each other myths. And it's like, this is not interesting, Megan. This is just right? him talking about Cadmus sewing the teeth. Like there's nothing happening here. <laughs> get back to the war please so it's it's hard to um kind of marry the myth and then a plot together um one of the things that helped me was like reading things outside of myth retelling so like if you found something that had really good pacing just kind of read that and look at the ways they do that to kind of move the plot of your own story along but if you ever wanted to like send a chapter you're not sure of I could try to help you out I'd be happy to do that and our stories are different enough that like we're not gonna steal from each other kind of thing no yeah I wouldn't worry I and also like I clearly yeah I think we're clearly on the same page of yours yours just generations lower than mine it's perfect yeah (laughs) I mentioned Cadmus as this distant guy he's not actually there yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason the palace is called the Cadmia. You got to mention him. <laughs> Love some help on it. Because I also just overthink it. Like my ADHD manifests in that way where like I'm so busy perfecting one chapter that I never like write the whole fucking book. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just a constant. I'm just like, I'm probably not meant to be a novel writer. Like, I think that's pretty certain, but I also refuse to let go of these characters. So I just keep like, just keep going. Um, but yeah, I'm more than happy to do that. I'm also happy to just like talk Thebes anytime. So. All right. Well, I probably hold you to that. Um, <laughs> I love how much this has devolved. I love just chatting about classics, everything. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to it now. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I had so much fun talking about it with you. Oh, I'm so glad. I fucking love Thebes and everything about it. Um, Is there anything that you want my listeners to know about you, to promote, anywhere they can follow you? If you have no answers, that's also fine. (laughs) Yeah, well, I am on Twitter at Megan Cleveland, but instead of a D at the end, it's an eight for some reason. So you can follow me on Twitter. Or my Instagram is um, Little Red Reading, (laughs) where it's more of like a bookstagram, if anything else. So if you like classics-inspired books... We can always talk about that. I love that handle. That's Thank such you. a wonderful Instagram handle. Well done. Thanks. That's great. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I hope everyone follows you on that because um, that's so fun. And thanks again so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's been so much fun. I love talking nerdery stuff. So thank you. 
Ah, nerds, as always, thank you so much for listening. Another huge thank you to Megan Cleveland, who studied the absolute hell out of this epic and for coming on and sharing so many interesting things about it and frankly convincing me uh, that even though it's Roman, it's still worth my time. We had so much fun, and that in itself is a real feat, uh, unless you're Seneca, I guess. Uh, Make sure you follow Megan on Twitter and Instagram, Little Red Reading. What a great handle. And I know you all love mythological retellings in all shapes and forms. This episode was so much fun. I am always here to learn more about Thebes. Why is it so cool? It's just so interesting. Underrated. Thank you to Megan. Let's Talk About Wits Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. Perhaps more commonly known as the assistant producer, the podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. I am Liv, and I seriously love Thebes and every expert willing to talk about it, even if it's about a Roman epic. That's really saying something. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 
Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com toyota let's go places. 